There we go. There y'all are. So if you have a Bible, open up to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're in between, uh, I guess, sermon series. We just finished Judges right before we got into December. We did a Christmas series. Um, And then for the month of January, uh, we're going to do something called Coffee Cup Verses. I'm pretty excited about that. And then there'll be a lot of stuff about coffee, which will make it great. And then we'll go in February, we'll be in Ruth. If you remember, Judges and Ruth were both written in the same time period. And so Judges is super sad. We wanted to do Ruth because it's in the same time period and have something that's a little bit happy in the sad period. Uh, And so in February, we'll get to Ruth. The coffee cup verses uh, are the four verses, there's lots, but at least four different coffee cup verses that are on, end up on coffee cups that might be taken out of context. And so uh, that'll be the month of January. Really, if you had a little subtitle, it's a study in hermeneutics, which just means the art and science of studying the Bible. Uh, so we're going to take four verses that are commonly misunderstood and explain what they really mean. And basically the goal is to have you equipped to know how to study the Bible. So before we get to that, today, uh, we're going to, what I do kind of the end of every year is uh, do a study on trying to help you love the Bible. So my goal today is that you'll love the Bible, and then next week we'll, we'll get you to want to study the Bible, and then we'll, you'll read the Bible this entire year. So uh, the goal of today is uh, why you should love the Word, why you should love the Word. So uh, if you can and you're able, uh, stand with us. Uh, I'm going to start reading in chapter 3, starting at verse 14. <clears throat> Uh, After I read, uh, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. Uh, And so as you're saying, thanks be to God, you're really doing two things. Of course, you're thanking God that he'll be so kind to give us his word. But secondarily, whenever you say, thanks be to God, you're within your heart and mind, and you're saying, Lord, whatever, whatever you teach me today, whatever the Holy Spirit reveals to me, I want to say yes, and I want to obey it. So starting 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when the people will not endorse on teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. God, we pray right now that you would come and in these next, I don't know, 40 minutes, God, that you would would fill our hearts and fill our minds with the Spirit and that we would be totally attuned to what you're teaching us. You're so good and we know that you have given us your word and that when your word is preached, God, that you come and you take the meager attempts at, at what I would say and that you would 
apply them to our hearts. You would teach us. You would lead us into truth. You would train us in righteousness. All the things that we just read that you'll do. And so would you come now and do these things? And more so than anything, I pray that you wouldn't just give us a love for your word, but above all that, you would do what your word promises, that you would uh, reveal to us all these things and lead us into truth and that our hearts would be deeply affected for Jesus. The goal is that we would love Jesus more. And so come now and cause our hearts to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why should you love the word? Why should you love the word? Um, if you don't have any more time, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right now, and then you can leave. This is why you should love the word. But if you would, listen to everything I have to say. I'd love it. Um, <laughs> so that you will read it every day in order to make your soul happy in Jesus. Why you should love the word is so that you will read it every single day in order to make your soul happy every day in Jesus. That's why you should love the word. You and I have a, a desperate need to make our soul happy in Jesus every day. And God has given us the means by which that can happen, the word of God. And so I pray this, this morning and that this entire year, you would read the Bible every day, not just to have a growing knowledge of the word, which is fine, but so that you would make your soul happy in Jesus every single day. We're reading 2 Timothy. Uh, this is at the end of Paul's life. He's in jail. He knows he's going to die. He wants Timothy to know some last thoughts. He's in a prison. Uh, and so as he's in a prison, he wants to make these last things known to Timothy. And so as we're looking at this, the, the big point of the text is that every Christian is called to keep learning. Every Christian is called to keep learning and living in God's word. And everyone who preaches and teaches the word is called to do so faithfully. That's the kind of the two big points. The first half is the, the part I read in chapter 3, 14 through 17. Every Christian is called to keep learning and living in God's word. And then chapter 4, 1 through 5. And everyone who preaches and teaches the word is called to do so faithfully. There's a, uh, a, a verse in Jeremiah 8, 7 that Joe pointed me to as I was told him I was wanting to talk about the word of God. Jeremiah 8, 7. And in that, this is towards the end of the Old Testament where they had been a people in a kingdom. And then uh, because of their sinful hearts, God had allowed Babylon to come and take them over. And when Babylon took the people, uh, the, the kingdom over, they actually took some of the people out of the land and made them exiles to Babylon. And it had just been a long time since they had been acquainted with the word. And while in Babylon, Jeremiah the prophet was raised up and he comes to them among many reasons to diagnose why they were, were where they were, where they were. And he tells them in Jeremiah 8, 7, he says, Even the stork in the heavens knows their times, and the turtle dove and the swallow and the crane keep their time of their coming. But my people don't know the rules of the Lord. In other words, birds knew where to go inside and out. They knew intuitively what they were to do and where they were to go. Animals knew how to obey God, but the people of God didn't know how to obey God. And his point to his people were, the reason why you don't obey God is because you don't know God because you don't know his word. Because you don't know his word. Now, we're not the people of God on exile from Babylon a long time ago, but there are some similarities. Uh, a lot of people here, we don't know his word. We just don't know his word. And it makes Jeremiah the prophet sad that animals obey God. They do what God wants them to do, but his own people don't simply because they don't know his word. Lifeway Research, after many years, 
uh, has done a lot of research, and they say this. They've shown us two things, which the Bible has already told us, right? So Lifeway didn't have to do this. They could have just read the Bible, which they do, and I'm sure they knew that, but they wanted to do research to show. But they have two main things after doing research is this. Number one, Bible engagement, reading the Bible, is the number one spiritual discipline for growth. If you want to grow spiritually, the number one way you can do it is by reading the Bible every day. I know you think it's something else. It's not. It's reading the Bible. And then based upon number one, number two, Bible engagement or reading affects every other spiritual discipline. People who engage the Bible give more, go more, serve more, evangelize more. So reading the Bible is literally the hinge point on every single thing. I would say, as a pastor, I deal with lots of people and the things that are going on uh, in their lives. And I just, I get most of the, most of the things, I just don't feel it anymore. I used to feel it, now I don't. There's, there's real problems, no doubt. But I would say most of the things that you want to change in your life, most of the things that will cause you to grow in your sanctification will actually happen if you add reading the Bible to your life. That seems like a pretty simple thing, but it can't be that easy. It is. Uh, We've never done one of these surveys, but lots of churches do them, and uh, they're usually not not pretty good, is that 20% of the people actually read the Bible in churches. Um, Reading the Bible literally causes all the other spiritual disciplines that you want to do, fasting, praying, giving, serving, evangelizing, all the things that all Christians really want to see themselves doing. Reading the Bible is the thing that will cause you to do it more than anything else because the Bible does what it promises it says it's going to do that we just read in 2 Timothy. It's going to do these things to us. It's going to cause us to want to be wise for salvation. It's going to cause us to be reproved and correct and trained us in righteousness so that we can be equipped to do every good work. Going to, it does these things, which is why we, we only preach through books of the Bible here, because we know the Bible promises to do these things. And so the large majority of the year, we pick books of the Bible and we preach through them because you need less of my thoughts and more of God's thoughts. And so that's why we preach through books of the Bible. So to start with, resolve right now to read the Bible this year. There's Bible reading plans out on the information table. Grab one of those or just Google it. You know, like, you're, I'm sure you have an app. Um, so read the Bible this year. Read the Bible this year. So what I want to do then is look at this text um, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4 and try to give us some, some deeper reasons on why we should love the Word. Why we should love the Word. The first, as I said, comes from verses 14 through 17. Charge number one from Paul to Timothy. Charge number one is this. It's on, the, it's, on the, it's on the screen. Number one, continue learning and living in God's word. You can go ahead and put it up. Charge number one. Oh, it worked. Good. Continue learning with the video. You never know. It's a, it's a gamble here. Continue learning. Gambling's bad. Don't do it. Learning and living in God's word. Um, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firm believing, knowing from whom you learned it. Just I want, Let's take this for a second. Paul is telling Timothy a pastor who learned under Paul. If you learned under Paul, you probably got the Bible down, right? You probably know a whole lot of stuff about the Bible if you learn from Paul. And Paul's telling Timothy, this is at the end of his life, so he had spent a lot of time with Paul. Paul tells Timothy this, continue 
and what you have learned and firmly believed. In other words, Timothy, you've never arrived at learning all of it. Don't ever stop learning. If that's the same for Timothy, then it's absolutely the same for us. We're never, ever, ever, ever going to arrive at enough Bible reading and learning about who God is. Not just for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of loving Jesus more. There's never a point. You've never read the Bible enough. And so, number one, continue learning and living in God's word. And so he tells him, but as for you, so he, he's talked about these bad people in verses one through nine, and he turns the conversation back to Timothy and makes it about Timothy. And he tells him, continue in what you have learned. Be a lifetime learner of the Bible. We must never grow weary. We must push ourselves to be men and women of the word. As Spurgeon says here, oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eaten to the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it until we have taken into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or recollect the poetical expressions or the historical facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible at last until you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scriptural models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. Have your very soul where it is true. Why, this man or this woman is a living Bible. Stick him anywhere and his, his blood is bibbling. He bleeds the Bible. It is the very essence of the Bible that flows from him or her. He or she cannot speak without quoting a text for his very soul is filled and full of the word of God. This is how we should be. That every time we talk or everything we say or we say, you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of a story in the Bible, blah, 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 that illustration. There's people in the church that talk like that. I love it. That's how we should be. That's how we should be. And so he says, here, Never, ever stop continuing what you've learned, firmly believe, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. This is the Bible. It's a blessing for children, even at young ages, to know the Bible and grow up into it. And then he tells them, uh, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. And right here, which are able. So the, the second half of 15 down through 17 is going to make a lot of statements about the Bible. It's going to make a lot of statements of the Bible. It's going to tell us really kind of two big picture things. It's going to tell us the nature of the scriptures, and then it's going to tell us the sufficiency of the scriptures. What's the nature of the Bible? What is the, what are some distinctions about the Bible? It's going to have three things it's going to tell us. And as it tells us that, then it's going to tell us why the Bible's sufficient. So let's look at the nature of the scriptures. There's, there's three things that it tells us about it. So read it here, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, which means the Bible, when it says make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, the Bible is Christ-centered. When we're talking about the nature of the scriptures, it is Christ-centered slash gospel-centered. It is all about Jesus. The Old Testament, the whole, every time you read the Old Testament, you should ask yourself, all right, how do I see Jesus in the Old Testament? And when you're reading the New Testament, okay, how do I see the gospel here in the New Testament? That's, that's the big picture question in every verse of scripture you ever read. Where do I see Jesus? Where do I see the gospel? In the Old Testament and the New Testament. The entire Bible is Christ-centered. The entire Bible is gospel-centered. They in, the, Old Testament, the Old Testament anticipates Christ. The New Testament explains Christ. 
It's all about Jesus and what he's done everywhere is telling us what he has done for us to be saved. The Bible's not a science book. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's about Jesus. It's Christ-centered and it's very natured. It's telling us about him. Now, there's a danger. There's a danger whenever you become a Christian. It's, it's, I call it the danger that Jerry Bridges uh, faced and warns us about. That whenever you come to a knowledge of the gospel, you think, now that I know the, the gospel, I want to move on to other kind of more deep things. And he warns us about that. And while certainly we know what he means, like we want to know more about Jesus, uh, he, he goes on and he writes further and he says, there is nothing deeper after the gospel. It's not get the gospel, then move on to other things. It's get the gospel and dive deeper into the good news of the gospel of what Christ has done. You don't move on to other deeper things. You just grow deeper into the good news of what Christ has done. The scriptures force us to this practice. The scriptures, because they're Christ-centered and gospel-centered, and everything centers around the person and work of what Jesus did, the Bible makes us think about him more and us less. That's good. And so... The Bible is not about how you can become great. Instead, the Bible is the fact that Jesus is great and we are forgiven and therefore we are free now to live our lives for him. It's all about what Christ has done, the good news, which means we'll rehearse it again. Jesus, because we need to hear it. Jesus Christ loves us so much that he went to the cross and willingly took on the full weight of of the punishment that you and I rightly deserved on the cross. In order that you could be forgiven by faith. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Or Romans 10. That we, we ask Christ, we, we, it's with the mouth that we confess and with, that we, and with our heart that we are justified. And whenever we say, Christ, forgive me for my sin, he does. And now you are completely forgiven forever. And so because of that, we live because he's done that, we live forever saying, thank you, God. I can't believe you forgive, you've forgiven me. And we don't move on to new things. We dive deeper into that truth on and on and on. And so the Bible is really about what Christ has done for us, not us. That's the first thing. The nature of the scriptures is that they're Christ-centered. They're gospel-centered. So this year, whenever you grab your, your uh, Bible reading plan off the table or on your phone, read looking for Jesus to be the hero of the Bible, because he is. Over and over, look for Jesus. And then whenever you see how Jesus is the hero of that scripture, let your heart exult. Like, wow, he is the hero. I love him for that. Every day, every single day, you want to look for new ways. I've said it so many times. The gospel is just a diamond, and you just turn it, and you're in awe of that. And you're like, wow, look at that diamond. It's so gorgeous. But I've never looked at it at that angle. Look at that. And it's, all it is is you just keep being amazed at the beauty of the gospel of what Christ has done for you on the cross. There's a kajillion different ways. That's a lot. And so for us to, to let our hearts be happy in what Christ has done for us. The nature of the scriptures is that they're Christ-centered and that they're gospel-centered. Keep going. Verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. So the second thing is not only are they Christ-centered, but they're God-breathed. They're God-breathed, which means uh, we're talking about the doctrine of inspiration, how the Bible is inspired, which means in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, when it says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So men, as they wrote, they wrote with their own personalities. They wrote with their own personalities and their own education levels. If you read the Bible 
and you know how to read Hebrew and Greek, um, then you'll see, oh, this guy really knows his Greek. Oh, this guy's not so great at Greek. Oh, this guy is, writes really simply. This guy, man, this is really complicated. He must have been really smart. So like, as you read, <coughs> you can see that their own personalities and their own education levels are there. They didn't write as robots. They didn't go in trances and like the Holy Spirit like put them in a trance and they just wrote. Like that's not how it worked. Um, they wrote with their own personalities and their own education levels. But nevertheless, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There was a superintending of the Holy Spirit that whenever they wrote, they understood this Bible or this book that I just wrote is the Bible. It's God breathed. God breathed it out. So uh, God wrote the Bible through them with their own personalities and education levels, but nevertheless, as they finished, it was fully inspired by God. That's the nature of the scriptures, which means you can trust it. You can totally trust it. It's good to know that we can totally trust this. So it's Christ-centered and it's God-breathed. And the next thing, if you look at the rest of 16 and 17, profitable for, profitable for, what all can the Bible do? So it's telling us that it's totally sufficient. That's the third thing. It's Christ-centered, it's God-breathed, it's totally sufficient. Here it is. Profitable for teaching, that's good. Reproof, that's good, but sometimes I don't like it. Correction, training in righteousness that the man of God, of course that means person, woman, whatever, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So they're Christ-centered, they're God-breathed, but they're also totally sufficient. What does that mean? Totally sufficient. What are the implications of something being totally sufficient? It means the Bible is really all you need. It's really all you need. There's a lot of things that can help, no doubt. Getting the counsel of other people, experiential types of things, but the Bible is what you really need when it comes to knowing Christ and growing deeper in Christ. He has set it up that the way that you know the will of God, the way that you know Christ more deeply is not through experiential, experiential means, but necessarily the word. It's totally sufficient. The Bible doesn't need something else to supplement it in order for you to know Jesus. It's totally sufficient in and of itself. And here's what they are. Here's what they are. So if I said that kind of the first thing tells us about the nature of the scriptures, the second thing tells us about the sufficiency of scriptures um, or what scriptures do, they tell us this. The first thing is uh, they make you wise for salvation in, in, uh, through faith in Christ Jesus. That was in 15 uh, where you saw which are able to make you wise for salvation. If you need to know how to be saved, the Bible tells you how to be saved. That's why people read the Bible and get saved. There's tons of stories where I've heard no one led them to Christ. They just read the Bible and came to faith. It also, you can see it profitable for teaching. It teaches you what you need to know. All the big picture questions of life are in this book. I would say most of them are in the first 12 chapters of Genesis. But everything that you've ever wondered is in here. And if you wonder crazy things like how does, you know, Instagram figure out their, their, their whatever to show me what I would see. What are those things called? That's not in there because you don't need to know that, right? That's not important. Why their theory or what, I don't know what those things are called. I don't know if I'm about, right? There's a, I can't remember that word. It doesn't matter. Um, if somebody knows it, please say it. Algorithm. algorithm. Yes. Why they use that algorithm? I don't know. You know, why Twitter use that algorithm? Who knows? Who cares, right? They cheat you on what people are saying, and you don't get to see it, but that's just the way it is. All right. Um, 
but that's not in the Bible because we don't need to know that. All right, so profitable for teaching. Um, profitable for reproof and correction. It's profitable for proof, proof, reproof and correction. If, if you know someone that really needs to be reproved and corrected, and no matter how many times you've gone to them and you said, you know what, I see this in your life and I, you, should, you should change. Like this isn't good. Maybe they'll listen to you or you could just pray, God, they're really struggling with this sin. I pray that they read that scripture that addresses that over and over. Lead them to that scripture over and over because it's the word that does that, right? And so you can tell them and you should tell them. The Bible commands us to tell them. But also you can just pray that God would lead them to that scripture over and over and over because the Bible does what it says. It reproves and corrects. And the Holy Spirit reproves and corrects better than we do every time. Now, you can do it well, likely, and you should because the Bible tells you to. But the Holy Spirit will always do it better than us. Always. And so uh, that doesn't mean don't do anything. Well, just leave it up to the Holy Spirit. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but the Bible does this. The Holy Spirit does it not on his own, but through the word. He does it through the word. It also makes us, trains us for righteousness. It trains us on how to be holy. Now, when I say trains us on how to be holy, I want to be careful here because at justification, we are declared holy. Whenever we trust in Christ, we're declared holy by God. So I'm not saying in regard to your justification. I'm saying in regard to your sanctification, you are declared righteous by God, completely pure by God. But then after that, you walk the path for the rest of your life of sanctification, pursuing Christ's likeness. And that doesn't earn your salvation. You are already declared God. You don't earn your salvation at all. God, God makes you righteous. But nevertheless, we're still commanded to grow in our righteousness, grow in our Christ-likeness. And the Bible tells us how to do that. The Bible tells us how to do that. And so it trains us in that. And the last thing it does is it makes the man of God competent and equipped to do his good works. We know in Ephesians 2.10 that there's good works that we should walk in them. We know that. There's, there's good works prepared beforehand that we should just walk in them. The Bible helps you walk in them. It makes you able and competent and equipped to go do those things. This is actually super equipped. That means that by the word, uh, because of the word, you're actually a superhero. Not like more than Jesus, but you're kind of a superhero. You could be in Marvel uh, because the Bible has equipped you to go do those superhero good works. Not like, you know, flying or something, but like helping people. Like, you can go do that. How does it do this? How does the Bible equip us for every good work? John Piper says this, how the scriptures equip us for every good work. The scripture, day after day, reveals to us the greatness and the beauty and the power and the wisdom and the mercy of all that God is for us in Christ. So that by the power of the Spirit, we find our joy in him and nothing else in him. And the ways of sin then become distasteful. Indeed, ugly and repugnant. Yes, the Bible gives us many specifics as pointers of how to live. But most deeply, the way the Bible equips us for every good work is by changing what we find satisfaction in. Don't miss that. You and I, all of us, have a problem, which is we find our joy in things that aren't Jesus. And we desperately want to find our satisfaction in Jesus, and we don't. And like, why, why not change? How can I change? I just want to change that. I can't stand that I love that instead of Jesus. The Bible changes what we find our satisfaction in, and that will happen the more you're in it. The Bible does this. 
so that our obedience comes within us freely, not by coercion, but from the Bible. It does this when we read it and meditate on it and memorize it and meditate it over meditate over it every day. That's what Piper says. John Stott says that in a much more succinct way. Scripture is the chief means which God employs to bring the man of God to maturity. Scripture is the chief means which God employs to bring the man of God to maturity. Now, there are other ways. Your church, your community, other Christians, all these other things, right? Worship music. All these things are good. But why would you not use the chief main? Why would you just use the other things and not the Bible? You should use the Bible and, and along with all these other things. That's the first thing. Continue learning and living in God's word. That's the first charge. The second charge. Now, I, the first charge certainly applies to us all because we all need to read the Bible. Now, Paul's writing to a pastor. The second charge applies more to pastors, but nevertheless, it certainly applies to all of you because you're all ministers of reconciliation. We know that from 2 Timothy 5, 4 and 5. So here's the second one. Number two, you can go ahead and put it up. Preach slash teach the gospel and word faithfully. Preach slash teach. There's a difference between the two. The gospel and word faithfully. I charge you, verse one, in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, which by the way, is awesome to think about. This is the environment that Paul is making the challenge to Timothy and the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Timothy, I charge you. This is a great little place to live in, by the way. That's where we preach the gospel. Who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in the kingdom? Here's the charge. Preach the word. This is herald or be the messenger, the announcer, the, procre- the proclaimer, the town crier. Herald the Bible, the gospel, the only hope but which we have. Her- preach the word. Martin Luther, talking about his life, he wrote a lot of stuff. He started the Reformation. He did a lot of stuff. This is what he said. I simply taught and preached and wrote on God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. I did nothing. He says it twice. The word did it all. I did nothing. I just left it to the word. When distress comes, spread the word and let it alone do the work. That's the power of the word. And so Paul knows that. That's why he tells Timothy, preach and teach the gospel and word faithfully. You can do that too. You can do that in community groups. You can do that in your families. You can do that whenever you're uh, having coffee over at Starbucks with somebody here or somebody from work. You can, you can not necessarily preach, but teach. You can talk about the Bible with them. You can herald it. John Stott says when we do this, we should do it really in four ways. We should do it with urgency. It means do it now. Do it right now. Baxter says, men will not cast away their dearest pleasures with a drowsy request where you don't even seem to mean what you say or care. Either um, whether your request, let me read that again. Men will not cast away their deepest pleasures with a drowsy request where you don't even seem to mean what you say or even care whether your request to trust Christ really be answered. Instead, do it with urgency. Do it with urgency. Number two, he says not to just do it urgent, but do it in a relevant way. The Bible is relevant. Some are doubters and they need truth. Some are sinful and they need rebuke. Some are full of fear and they need encouragement. And God's word does all, God's word does all of this. So do it with urgency, do it with relevancy. The next one is do it with patience. This is not the opposite of the first one, urgency. The urgency means how we should, uh, how our heart should be when we go. The patience means that once we're there, the way we talk. 
So we do it ur- with urgency. We do it with relevancy. The next one is we do it with patience. We don't pressure people. Instead, we continue to endure with them. And our responsibility is to be faithful with them. And lastly, not just urgent, relevant, patient, but intelligence. Which means if you're going to do it with intelligence, you're going to preach, teach the word of God to people with intelligence. means that you're going to use wisdom and care. You're going to use wisdom and care. You balance preaching and teaching. You, you uh, intelligently, with wisdom, talk about the word. And then you, as you do it, you clearly show that you love them and care about them. If they just know that you love the truth and not them, they're likely going to be turned off. And he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Be ready in season and out of season. So do we just preach it when it's convenient? Do we preach it when it's, do we just talk about Jesus? Let's just make it so it's for all of us. Do we talk about Jesus when it's convenient? Do we just talk about Jesus when we have the time? Do we talk about Jesus when people want to finally hear it? Do we talk about Jesus when people are finally receptive? Do we talk about Jesus when they finally really like the message? That's the in-season part, right? He says to preach the word in-season and out-of-season. What does that mean? It means when it's not convenient, you talk about Jesus. It means when, it's, when you're out of time, you talk about Jesus. It means when people don't want to hear it, when they aren't receptive, when they don't like the message. Now, again, we do that intelligently with wisdom and care. We want to be winsome. We want to be loving. But nevertheless, we're commanded to do it in season and out of season. In season and out of season. <clears throat> in season's easy. Out of season is difficult. We want to be pastoral and patient. For the time is coming when people not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the midst. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist. So we are to reprove Rebuke, when he says preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So all these things are to be done in the context uh, with the word. Whenever we preach the word, we don't just preach our thoughts. We don't just preach our our opinions, but we do it with the word. We do it in a Christ-centered way. Whenever we reprove, rebuke, we exhort, that can easily lead to bad things if you're not doing it with wisdom and winsomeness and love and care. And so we want to be pastoral when we do it. When it be really pastoral, that just means um, you don't beat them over the head. You love them. You talk to them. You care about them. You do life with them. You endure with them. It takes a long time. We also want to be patient. This doesn't happen usually over one sermon or one conversation that changes people. Like it's usually not in a five-minute conversation. They're like, you know what? All my life decisions are trash. You're right. You're, I'm going to change everything right now. No one does that in five minutes. Maybe it happens rarely, but hardly ever. Sanctification is a process. It's the cumulative effect of your ongoing conversations and talking about the word over coffee over a long time that, long time that finally bears fruit. And so be willing to be pastoral and patient. Endure with them for a long time. That's how it happens. And it matters. It really matters. Theology is important because uh, there will come a time, as he says, where people won't bear with the truth, which is why we must continually preach the gospel faithfully and consistently. There will be a time where people don't want to hear it, but instead they'll want teachers that teach them the opposite of what the Bible says. They'll want, uh, as it says, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I don't like what the Bible says. I need something the opposite of that. So let me find somebody or go somewhere that teaches the opposite of the Bible because that makes me feel better. 
And while that's understandable for us to want to run to messages that make us feel good, it's not in the end what's best. And so we need to be kind-hearted and gentle to them so that they'll want to <coughs> put themselves under the truth of the word. When people don't want to listen, we shouldn't just say, well, let me be silent and keep my peace. Instead, we should speak. But as we speak, we endure on in our suffering. We do the work of the evangelist. And as he says, we fulfill our ministry. We fulfill our ministry. I want to close with this. I want to close with this. This is an illustration from George Mueller. Uh, he lived some hundred something years ago. And he was in England. He was a famous for caring about th uh, thousands of orphans and seeing God answer his daily prayers and for their provisions. And one day he was preaching at the end of the year at a New Year service, kind of like this. Uh, he was 59 years old. Uh, and I think it's a powerful message for us today. At the end of one year, moving into the next, this is what he says. We have, through the goodness of the Lord, been permitted to enter upon another year. And the minds of many among us will no doubt be occupied with plans for the future and the various fears of our work and service for the Lord. If our lives are spared, we should be engaged in those. The welfare of our families, the prosperity of our business and work and the service for Christ may be considered uh, the most important matters to be attended to. But according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. It's not the welfare of our families. It's not the prosperity of our business. It's not even the work of ministry. He says this, the most important thing in my judgment is this, which is why I said what I said in the very beginning. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. It's the most important work you can do. See to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Above all things, day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. Let me stop in his little sermon, which means whatever distracts you from this, move it away from your space for the first two hours of your day or first half hour of your day. Whatever it is that keeps you from this, for love of Jesus, move it away from you. This is the most important work of, of your life is to each day read the Bible because it is what you need more than anything to make your soul happy in the Lord each day. I'm not, I'm not saying read the Bible a chapter a day. I'm not saying how much. I trust the Holy Spirit to t show you. But to read the Bible, if it's just a verse, if it's just one verse, read the Bible every day to make your soul happy in Jesus to see him as the hero of your life, to realize that he has given you complete forgiveness in the gospel. And now you can walk through this day knowing what he's done for you. All other things you'll do that day will be important. I'm not saying they aren't, but this is, and I agree with him, the most important thing. This has been my firm and settled condition for the last 35 years. For the first four years of my conversion, I didn't know of its vast importance. But now, after much experience, I especially commend this point to the notice of my younger brothers and sisters in Christ. The secret of all true effectual service is joy in God. But in what way shall we attain to this settled happiness of our souls? 
How shall we learn to enjoy God? How shall we obtain such an all-sufficient, soul-satisfying portion in him as to enable us to let go of the things of this world as vain and worthless in comparison to Jesus? I answer this. Here it is. He tells us to do it. Now he tells us how. This happiness is to be obtained through the study of the Holy Scriptures. God has therein revealed himself unto us in the face of Christ Jesus. Now, I know that's George Mueller telling that 100 years ago, but he's only telling us what the Bible is telling us already. So just because I said, George Mueller said it, so you should do it, shouldn't change you one iota, right? It's because we've looked in the Bible and the Bible has already told us that's where we can do it. To make our soul happy in Jesus every day is done by being in the Bible every day. He's just reiterating what we already know because we've studied it for 40 minutes or however long, in the scriptures, by the power of the Holy Ghost, in the scriptures, by the power of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, he makes himself known to our souls. In the scriptures, he makes himself known, not through any other kind of a means, except through the scriptures. Therefore, the very earliest portion of the day, we can command, that we can command, we should be devoted to the meditation on the scriptures. Our souls should feed upon the word. This intimate acquaintance with him will make us truly happy. Nothing else will. In God our Father and blessed Jesus, our souls have a rich, divine, imperishable, eternal treasure. Let us enter into practical possession of these true riches every day. Yea, let the remaining days of our earthly pilgrimage be spent in an ever-increased, devoted, earnest consecration of our souls to God by the word. By the word. So we should do these things. We should hear the word. We should read the word. We should study the word. We should memorize the word. And we should meditate on the word. You don't have to do all five of those every day. But for the rest of your life, hear the word, read the word, study the word, memorize the word, meditate on the word. And ask yourself these questions. Let's close with this. How are you pursuing Christ in your study of the scriptures? How are you pursuing Christ? What needs to change for you to start learning and living in God's word? What's the thing in the first 30 minutes of your day that has to stop? And maybe it's what's the thing in the last two hours of the day previous that needs to stop so that you can get up in time for the first 30 minutes of your day? What needs to change? How can you exalt worship or exalt rejoice over the scriptures daily? How can you do that every day? Who are you heralding the good news to? Who should you herald the good news to? Who are you sharing the gospel with? Who's on the other side of the table at Starbucks or wherever you like coffee? Share the gospel, not just in season, but out of season. And lastly, what do you need to do to make your soul Happy in Jesus every day. Obviously, the answer is being the word. So, what do you need to do in your life to make that happen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your mercy and your kindness to us. You are so good to us. God, you did not have to give us your word. You could have just never spoken through your word to us. And we could have just meandered around trying to know you, trying to figure out how to know you. But in your infinite kindness and goodness towards us, from eternity past, you planned 
to speak through us through your word. And you gave it to us. And God, I pray that we would never, ever take that for granted. That you have spoken through your word to us. And we have your word. We can know the intricacies and the preciousness of Jesus Christ by being in the word every day. And so I pray for us all that the charge and challenge of this text and really the whole text would be something that we would not just see worthy, but that we would want to take up. God, that we would want to be in your word every day, not just to grow in knowledge, but to grow in our deep affections for Jesus. Help us on the days when we wake up when we don't feel like it. Help us. Holy Spirit, change our hearts and minds on those days when we don't feel like reading to remind ourselves of the glories that await us in the scriptures and the sanctification that awaits us in the scriptures and the beauty of seeing Jesus that awaits us in the scriptures. And for those days that we do wake up excited and we can't wait to read the word, don't, don't ever let us think that, look what I did. Whoo, I was happy to read the Bible today. Look at me. Instead, change our hearts to say, thank you, God, for giving me a heart that loves your word today. I'm so happy that you would love me so much that you would make my heart want to read your Bible today. Don't ever let us take the glory. May all glory be to you. But we need you every day when we want to read and when we don't want to read. When we want to pursue you, when we don't want to pursue you. We need you every day. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.